Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts, of George Mason University and Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, find other episodes, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. My guest today is Thomas Hazlett, professor of law and economics, and my colleague here at George Mason University. Welcome to Econ Talk. Thanks, Russ. Our topic today is telecommunications, a subject most of us pay little attention to, except when it sort of bursts through the uh, into the news loudly enough to get us uh, focused on it. One of the issues that we hear about a lot these days is net neutrality. What is that issue, and what what's involved? The uh question actually is harder than you might think because there are many uh, flavors of proposed regulation which are involved in the net neutrality matrix. But uh, at a high level, uh, the argument is made that uh, the Internet has uh, been created uh, according to particular blueprints of architectural design. And this uh, design is to basically... Uh, separate the edge of the network, uh, which is where applications are provided to end users, individual consumers, from the core of the network, which is essentially uh, an interconnected uh, uh, layer of networks. And the argument has been that this design of the Internet has worked spectacularly well in allowing lots of independent innovators to uh, offer their their content or applications uh, to the marketplace without reinventing the wheel, uh, which is to say building their own delivery network. And uh, so the argument is extended to say that this uh, structure is in danger by the emergence of large network providers uh, if you will, the Comcast, the AT&Ts, or Verizons, uh, which uh, have constructed very considerable um, infrastructure to bring high-speed data services to uh, uh, businesses, small businesses, and uh, households, uh, and that they might, if left to their own devices, try to trespass in the sense of uh, you know, uh, closing off uh, access at the edge of the network, uh, so that to um, you know log on, uh, say to to a Verizon DSL connection, uh, you would only have the option to go to Verizon selected websites, and so to protect essentially the vertical integration, the ability of the uh, network provider, the access provider, uh, to uh, uh, restrict your you know your choices as a customer. That uh, regulation is needed to uh, to inhibit that. So that's that's the basic argument. The uh, that's uh, the argument in favor of this idea that that certain providers should not be able to restrict vertical access. Right. It would be a regulation on the uh, network providers, the company that you say buy your broadband service from, and it would. Uh, maintain that the, they would, uh, in some unspecified way, as I said, there are many flavors of, um, of this argument, 
in some unspecified way that they would be limited in how they could uh, market the service to you, in how they could price it, and how they could price access to content providers. Presumably, they wouldn't be allowed to charge a Google or an AOL or uh, some other provider of services and, and an owner of websites. They uh, they would not be able to charge those um, uh, information providers access fees to get to their customers. They would allow they would have to allow their customers once the customers had paid their monthly dues to join the club that they would uh, then have free access to the internet. Now there are many complications with that, and uh, the counter argument says that the argument I just gave you is wrong at virtually every level. The internet was not invented according to architectural blueprints. It's in, it evolved spontaneously uh, the, uh, uh, to the extent that there's a, a design factor in there. It's private property rights. That is to say the networks build uh, their uh, infrastructure and transport facilities precisely because they own those facilities and can charge market prices. If you look to the core of the Internet in particular, uh, Internet backbone providers that uh, uh, move very large uh, uh, flows of data uh, all over the globe, uh, those networks interconnect not because of any mandate. Uh, there is no regulation. There is simply a, uh, a spontaneous uh, system that's been uh, evolved to um, uh, enable these uh, uh, competing and yet complementary networks to uh, coordinate their activities and pass traffic back and forth. And that, in fact, is a, a marvel of uh, spontaneous market structure. And yes, there has been a modularity to the Internet so that the Internet, like many other industries, has developed in a way in which uh, there's a, a very large degree of specialization and transport networks tend not to uh, get heavily involved with content. They, they, uh, they don't specialize in it. They don't have a comparative advantage in it. And it just turns out that all the way around, there has been a, a, a very uh, virtuous dynamic, but that dynamic has not been uh, baked into the system by some sort of uh, regulatory structure, quite the reverse. The regulatory uh, structure has been minimal, and the evolution of the Internet is a testimony to open markets, but open in the sense of less regulated. And uh, it should be noted that there are many, many, quote-unquote, violations of net neutrality. That is to say, network providers often do uh, uh, stick their fingers into the services that their customers receive. And much of that is very, very valuable intervention, uh, vertical control, if you will, by the network operator, obviously in terms of malware and spam. It really isn't even controversial that networks try to filter out certain applications from getting to the edge of the network so that their customers could freely choose it. There are economies of scale and efficiencies in having that uh, uh, stuff filtered out by uh, network providers. But there are also you know, many other important examples that are not well understood, including the vertical integration of a company like Google that maintains its own physical transport network, uh, that maintains, of course, its own uh, computing network. That uh, what do you mean uh, by, by its own? What do you mean by its own physical transport network? Well, the Google. Uh, if, if you notice when you search Google, one of the one of the great uh, consumer conveniences of using Google is that it's lightning fast. That means that the Google network is uh, globally constructed on dedicated bandwidth 
that is, uh, in essence, owned by Google. Now, Google's a content provider, and they operate classically at the edge of the network for Google Search. They're uh, a utility that, you know, millions, in fact, billions of end users avail themselves of. But they own the innards of the transportation system over which their, uh, you know, their information travels on. They also, of course, own a huge computing farm, uh, multiple computing farms for that matter, uh, that uh, in some sense could be shared with other uh, search engines, uh, but is not. It's, it's uh, obviously proprietary. It's extremely expensive. Uh, there's a secret sauce uh, into, the, into the physical uh, configuration of that network, and uh, as well as other elements of Google that uh, give them a business advantage over their rivals so that they're, quote-unquote, not an open network that way. And in fact, in the history of Google, there have been very important deals cut by Google with uh, Internet service providers. So the biggest business event in the history of Google, uh, according to one of the excellent biographies of the, of the, uh, of the company by David Weiss, a reporter at the uh, Washington Post, the biggest business event in the history of the company was in May of 2002, if memory serves, when, prior, prior to being a public company and not having a lot of cash at that point, Google actually paid both cash and warrants to AOL, which at that time, of course, was the dominant Internet service provider in the United States. And there was a big internal argument at, at Google as to whether or not they could afford to pay to get default, to become the default search engine, so that when 34 million AOL subscribers um, uh, logged onto their uh, startup page, that it would be the Google search engine that would pop up, not the Yahoo search engine or some other companies. And the big internal debate between uh, Sergey Brin and Larry Page on one side, the, the young uh, wonder kind, and then they were arguing with the uh, Eric Schmidt, the CEO, that was brought in as sort of adult supervision by the uh, funding sources. Well, Schmidt argued against it, so they didn't have the money, couldn't pay for it, it was too risky. And the uh, uh, two young techies, they, they said, you're, you're just absolutely nuts. To get scale, to get the, the massive market reach that AOL would bring at one fell swoop was worth whatever it cost, and so they paid. So this was a situation where you know, in a direct violation of the class, sort of the classic violation of net neutrality, you had an internet service provider, presumably with market power. At least the uh, Federal Trade Commission, just a year or two previous, had uh, determined that that uh, AOL Time Warner involved market power with internet services. Uh, that uh, this uh, this behemoth uh, uh, network uh, could actually charge. Uh, a content provider to be the uh, to have preferential uh, treatment on the startup page. So, the Google readily engaged in that on the way up. They were the uh, upstart entrant uh, against uh, companies like Yahoo and Microsoft and even AOL itself. But they um, they played that game and they still play it. They they actually uh, are an important part now of a wireless ISP in the United States called Clearwire that is attempting to bring. Um, a new technology called WiMAX, uh, delivering wireless broadband service to the American public uh, via uh, uh, licenses that have been uh, uh, sort of scattered around and wasted in, in, in uh, various underutilized uh, uh, applications for many decades. Anyway, the uh, Clearwire play, uh, in which Google is a partner, uh, is... Um, uh, a partnership in which 
Google gets preferential treatment on the handsets used, they are the default search engine uh, that you can reach just by pressing the G button on the Motorola handset. Motorola being another partner in the deal, and Google having uh, helped to fund uh, this wireless ISP. So uh, these non-neutral deals where you get both transportation and content, uh, in other words, the, the delivery network and, and, the, and the content mixed up together, bundled or vertically integrated, if you will, uh, these have been very pro-competitive in many respects because it, it, it gives new business models the ability to test themselves for consumer acceptance and for efficiency in terms of raising capital and the, the normal uh, uh, you know, competition you want to see uh, between uh, competing uh, forms of business organization. And uh, Google is readily engaged in that, but uh, at a high level, they argue uh, most famously uh, for net neutrality. They're certainly the leading corporate champion, uh, at least most visible corporate champion, although Microsoft and other uh, uh, West Coast slash Silicon Valley companies have, have uh, gone in that direction with their lobbying as well. well I, I think for those of us who um, you know, aren't immersed in the details, I, I think the challenge here is to think broadly about competition. And I think there's a tendency to forget that, that competition is a, a rich term. You know, each, each iteration of, of success alarms people. So we go back uh, in our lifetimes, yours and mine anyway, um, when IBM was the biggest competitive threat. They, they had a dominant market share and were, they were going to monopolize the computer business. This, for those of you under the age of, I don't know, 30 or so, this is back in the, in the 70s. So you know, Microsoft was uh, – I mean, excuse me, <laughs> Microsoft. IBM was going to can take control of computers, and this was the mainframe business, and the rest of the world was not going to be able to innovate. And then suddenly it turned out that the mainframe business was not the dominant business. It was desktop computers, and, and suddenly, uh, even though IBM started off as a dominant player in that, they soon were d- dominated by Microsoft. And suddenly Microsoft was going to destroy the world, and like IBM, they became the focus of a major antitrust case. Uh, because if we didn't stop them, they would uh, be in charge. And now it seems to some extent that people are afraid that Google is going to be the behemoth that is the dominant player and going to kill competition. For people who worry about that, you know, our side, who who tends to be more open-minded about – I don't know open-minded is the right word – imaginative, um, trying to find something less less attractive, but who who, who at least – Imagine competition being available down the road, even though it appears that there's something close to a monopolist. Uh, our side tends to say things like, well, you know, in the past, uh, if you get a dominant position, you're at risk of losing it through a new competitor. The other side says, well, that's worked in the past, but how do you know it's going to work this time? And I think to some extent, that's what people are worrying about in this the type of issues you're talking about, as well as this general antitrust issue, that somehow – by payments and and special privileges and a market share dominance, a firm is going to be able to exploit consumers. Uh, do you think that's what people are worried about? Am I right there? And uh, do you think they should be worried? Well, um, I'm always in favor of worrying, Russ. You know that, uh, and and I, I I like to worry about all things, uh, but. Um, you do have to uh, pick your spots and, and, in fact, calibrate uh, the trade-offs. 
So you you correctly talk about the generational monopoly fears in the in the computer sector, and so there's a uh, major antitrust suit filed against IBM on the last day of the Lyndon Johnson administration in 1969. And that suit goes for 13 years, never reaches a final opinion, and is dropped in January of 1982 by the Reagan administration. Now, that, that, that's actually quite interesting. A, a lawsuit goes 13 years in the computer business and tries to deal with the antitrust problem. So even if the Reagan administration had prosecuted it fully, and we had gone through um, both the final opinion and all the appeals, we would have been talking about 15 to 20 years at a minimum down the road in the, 19, the late 1980s, coming back and trying to fix the 1960s computer market. Uh, that, that is just way above the pay grade uh, of our U.S. Department of Justice attorneys. And, and, and a lot of those attorneys are very smart people and, and certainly come from very capable law programs at the top schools in the country. It's really not a matter of, of, of firepower. It's a matter of the, the nature of, of the issue. So by 1982, when the, when the case is dropped against IBM, a company that wasn't even on the radar screen, wasn't a public company at that point, Microsoft, had already laid the framework for what would become, according to the Department of Justice in 1998, the new monopoly, because they had gotten in to the operating system business, which nobody... Uh, who uh, had the clout to <laughs> really maneuver the resources, nobody in the computer industry really understood uh, was going to be uh, the new cash cow. In fact, Microsoft didn't even understand that. They thought applications, software applications would be the big thing. And uh, it, 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 there was a lot of uh, propinquity in the fact that uh, Gates and Allen and the uh, Balmer and the, and the folks at Microsoft ended up achieving such enormous market value uh, because they certainly did get one thing right, this ubiquitous software p uh, platform that wasn't the best platform but was good enough and was cheap and, as I said before, was ubiquitous. That, that scale really, really did everything, created huge efficiencies. So in 1998, the Department of Justice goes after Microsoft. Now, May of 1998, just a little more than a decade ago, and that, that was the attack on Microsoft for monopoly. Now, that seems like ancient history, even to the younger generation now. Uh, they, they really have no conception of uh, Microsoft being the monopolist. They, they, they think of what's happened in the last decade as being current history and what has happened in the last decade. Well, Microsoft has seen its, its market value go nowhere, despite this enormous uh, scale and uh, alleged market power. And they lost the antitrust case. Uh, and uh, by, you know, by all accounts, the remedies were, were essentially nil. It didn't, it didn't really create competition in, 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 uh, in operating systems, which was well, the, uh, the, and the irony, case. And the irony was it was also over the search the, – not the search engine, the browser – which now seems so unimportant at the time. Well, it seemed yeah, like everything. Actually, the, the theory of the case, though, was that the browse the Microsoft, which which had this market power, uh, more than ninety percent market share in in uh, operating systems, the Windows operating system, uh, that they went after uh, competition from the browser, not because they uh, they wanted to control the browser market, so to speak, or even that there was a separate market there. That was the uh, competition from Netscape Navigator. Uh, that uh, Microsoft very quickly tooled up and 
and uh, created its own Internet Explorer to take on. But the, 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 what, what the government alleged was that uh, Microsoft was really protecting its underlying operating system because in, like a Trojan horse, in the Netscape navigating system was software code uh, called Java. And uh, all kinds, thousands of applications can be written in the Java language. And if, in fact, uh, millions, tens of millions, hundreds of millions of computers, <clears throat> even though they had the Windows operating system on it, if, if, if they actually had this Netscape Navigator with Java in it, all of a sudden, thousands of applications could be written to the, to the Java. And uh, they, that would form a virtual operating system that would make Microsoft's underlying operating system basically a commodity in the in the words of some internal emails at Microsoft and in the in the DOJ case the antitrust case so the the department of justice did not say that it was um uh, you know specifically a problem of squelching competition in the browser market although that was uh, obviously a big part of uh, their case because they they took that as a an indication that Microsoft was protecting its underlying uh, Windows operating system. But be that as it may, um, you know, there we, we do have a lot of competition. Most, you know, many of us use browsers that are non-Microsoft these days, and, um, you know, both on Windows machines and Apple machines. But um, the uh, the competition that has come has been totally unforeseen. Okay, what, what has Microsoft lost out to in the last decade? Well, they lost out to, I mean, Apple, which, you know, came back from the dead. Uh, within the last 10 years, their company is, you know, was, was literally on the rocks. Uh, they, they now are, are a powerhouse that's, that's worth about half in market cap what Microsoft is worth because of basically two hardware devices, one, one being the uh, iPod and the other being the iPhone. And It's kind of ironic, isn't it, when you think about how Everybody said that the lesson that Apple never learned in its first battle with Microsoft was open systems. And then they come back with two totally closed devices that they totally control and have created tremendous success with. Yeah, Apple would disagree with the characterization as total, which and then we'd we'd go into a discussion which shows you how uh, you know openness is in the eye of the beholder. But absolutely I I, I agree with the sentiment of your your comment that you know, Apple just made so many mistakes. They had such beautiful products in, in the uh, uh, in the 1980s, and they wouldn't uh, follow what became the Microsoft business model of licensing their operating system, uh, Mac OS, for example, which Bill Gates in 1985 famously urged Apple to do because he he wanted his applications to run on that beautiful graphical user interface. And then finally, when Apple said no, they you know they 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 wouldn't really make their their Mac OS a standard for the industry, then Microsoft did it instead and uh, and did it with Windows. But uh, Apple made so many mistakes and took such a beautiful uh, set of products and so under-marketed them that, um, you know, it was a sad story. Ten years ago, people were crying. And, and look at them now. That same business model, in many respects, has proven very valuable. And, and part of the value 
and I say this as uh, somebody who's just made the switch uh, after resisting Apple, uh, an Apple uh, computer for many, many decades now. Uh, the the Apple machines, because they're not as open as the Microsoft or uh, so-called Wintel machines, the Windows uh, Intel chips, that they um, they are much more resistant to to malware and spam and all the problems of uh, uh, of the internet uh, connectedness uh, that, that that you know normal users have to uh, run interference on. Well, I'm glad you're in the club. I'm a proud <laughs> user since about 1984. Uh, maybe eighty-five. So it's it's nice to have you with us. <laughs> well, I have to I have to admit they're beautiful machines, and and you know today they're just cleaner, and and the closed or relatively closed model of of uh, you know the Mac world um, may have been inefficient in nineteen eighty-five, and it may be efficient in you know two thousand and eight. So yeah, these uh, these things are very hard to analyze from afar, and they're certainly not understandable if you have a rigid framework in which you're trying to fit the market. You got to stand back a little bit and see how these competing business models actually rival each other and how, you know, how these markets develop whether it be the uh the modular nature of uh internet providers that sometimes have very clear lines of demarcation between things like transport and and content and then other times cross over those lines and and uh, certainly in the competition between Microsoft and Apple and some other providers uh you you know you've you've seen some very um uh interesting ups and downs in the um uh, you know almost a cyclical uh, uh kind of pattern one thing that's interesting about the antitrust element is that the uh, uh 1995 96 uh apple actually this is when they were having their tough times they reached a uh, merger agreement with IBM and IBM, of course, had worked with Microsoft on the uh, on, an, on a on a new operating system, and that that didn't work out so well for IBM. It worked out brilliantly for for Microsoft, but the OS one was supposed to be um, uh, the new you know killer uh, app for, for for software, and Microsoft just went off with Windows and uh, left left IBM hanging. IBM then looked to Apple. And wanted desperately to get their hands on that beautiful Mac OS and, and use the scale of IBM to actually really take on Microsoft and, and the monopoly they were perceived to have in operating systems. Well, what happened to that uh, merger deal was that they reached an agreement, Apple agreed to sell, and then they uh, went through the uh, agreement at IBM. Well, Apple was saying that they would not. Even even though IBM was giving them uh, very strong protection in, in terms of um, the proprietary nature of the Mac OS and protecting the code and making sure that any software developers who were working on it would be isolated from other developers until the uh, merger was approved by the antitrust authorities, uh, Apple insisted that there be no no collaboration on the Mac OS until the merger were approved. IBM shareholders said, "Well, wait a minute. That's going to—that means that we, for a, for a solid year, we're we're not going to be able to to do anything with Apple." And because of that long lag that they uh, were convinced the antitrust authorities would impose on the combination, uh, IBM said, "No, this is not acceptable," and they were not able to uh, to move forward. Now that's 
that is spectacularly uh, unproductive from antitrust, uh, from an antitrust perspective. If, you, if you're supposed to be having a competition policy, and you you know you're soon to identify. In fact, you'd already in some other investigations uh, put your finger on uh, Microsoft as now the anti-competitive force that was gaining such size and market power that it was. Uh, becoming anti-consumer, or potentially so, to say that these two very robust rivals, uh, one small and uh, highly innovative uh, with great software, the other large-scale, lots of experience, lots of uh, uh, business lines it could exploit and leverage to uh, compete head-to-head with Microsoft, that they can't get together and really put together a product that can uh, take market share from the dominant uh, Windows Operating system. Well, that's exactly what happened, and uh, that merger was um, uh, was literally, you know, barred by the simple costs of antitrust. Well, that's one of the challenges of any kind of regulation is it, you can't have it be flexible, too flexible, because then it becomes too discretionary and puts too much power in the hands of the the regulator. But if you have arbitrary rules, then every once in a while they're going to lead to some very bizarre results like that. It seems to me that that's an inherently uh, unsolvable problem. Well, yeah, I mean, it, it's, it is a cost of the policy, and here I think it would um, uh, underscore and uh, well underscore the fact you might want to recalibrate the policy. I mean, on the other side, you certainly say that you know no one case is determinative. Hard to argue with that. You want to look at the whole scope, but when you look at the whole scope of uh, the antitrust cases in this area and go through IBM and then the Microsoft case and the fact that uh, all sides to you know all parties to that case think that it uh, it was a flop i mean the the advocates of the government suit are not at all happy about the remedies they don't think any po- think positive was accomplished and certainly Microsoft is you know still maintaining its innocence so let me let me go back to the net neutrality issue though for one more um clarifying question, and then I want to move on to Spectrum, which is uh, another important issue. But on this issue of net neutrality, I think the people on the other side, the people who are um, – obviously, there's special interests on both sides. But if we step back from that and just try to think about the economics of it, I think – I assume that one of the things that people are worrying about is uh, akin to what happened, I think, in – or what appears to have happened in cable TV markets, where – you get a dominant provider, sometimes, of course, a dominant provider, given monopoly power by the government, given real genuine monopoly power, who then can exploit consumers and limit choices, et cetera, maybe even price discriminate. And when there are these large economies of scale of these networks, people worry that we won't get the kind of robust competition and that the future will end up uh, putting us in the hands of, of a very small group of folks who may be able to cut us off from things that we'd like to have. Now, of course, cutting people off from things they'd like to have is usually not a way to make money. But the claim would be that, well, yes, but it's going to be – they're going to be able to exploit consumers because there isn't going to be that ease of entry that we usually rely on in competitive markets. What's your reaction to that? And is that the right – is that what the other side says? Well, you, you do hear that. So that's you know one, one of the arguments. And I, I mean I tried to fairly characterize uh, the argument initially. Maybe I'm – uh, oversold on my own abilities of objectivity, but um, um, you know there there is a, a strong argument being pushed by uh, you know knowledgeable people and people who have a lot of credibility uh, that uh, in fact uh, you know there is market power that can be exerted uh, by uh, in particular the transport providers here these these uh, you know access networks 
and uh, that will thwart the creativity and innovation at the at the edge of the internet. Um, the um, cable TV example is actually one that's near and dear to my heart because I've uh, spent a lot of my career looking at competition in the cable TV market. And, in fact, that's uh, uh, really the gateway for me into the entire telecommunications area. And when people point their finger at the cable market and say that the cable providers have vertically integrated and exploited their their market power uh, to thwart consumer choice, uh, that's that's just a bad argument. That's 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 not what's happened. It doesn't explain the the vertical integration is not uh, has been highly efficient in cable and um, the way that market has developed. Uh, after being suppressed by regulators for for decades in the United States and elsewhere uh, to protect broadcasters from competition, uh, has had some significant market power problems. But the market power problems are at the local competition level. What you want for efficiency and for consumer protection is you want multiple providers of what we call multi-channel programming. And when you have multiple platforms then you get uh, tremendous efficiencies, economies of scale and scope, and you get consumer choice. And one of the things that uh, people don't realize, they, they think that the consumer choice comes on the Internet if you shop for things one at a time uh, versus uh, if you subscribe to, say, a cable television package where the operator picks, you know, picks out you know, 150 or 200 channels uh, to provide. Uh, but that's that's simply uh, an ad hoc and arbitrary, and, and I might say rather anti-consumer way to, uh, to 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 impose a structure on the market. Uh, it, it may be just highly efficient to give consumers the choice of 100 or 200 channels, and and in fact it is highly efficient. That's and and, and if there were a better way to do it at a lower cost. What you mean by efficient is the consumers. The cost difference is large enough that consumers prefer the fixed bundle of 200 because it's so cheap. Well, I mean, just, just take the entrance into the multi-channel uh, programming market in the U.S. Uh, since 1994-96, we've, we've seen two nationwide rivals to the local c- cable TV monopoly, erstwhile monopolist, I might point out now, because now we do have at least three operators in well over 90% of U.S. markets and uh, we're, we're, get, we're getting a fourth in terms of the phone companies coming in and, and finally now being allowed to uh, uh, to provide through, in essence, a competitive franchise. Who are the three? You say three well, operators. The, the, the first I'm, I'm counting is um, the traditional cable uh, uh, cable operator. Okay, who, uh, for you know, for all intents and purposes, uh, had a monopoly franchise up. Uh, up, up through the, the the mid-90s. Then you got entry in 1994 by DirecTV that has a satellite footprint spanning the entire uh, continental U.S. and even parts, I think, of Alaska and Hawaii. Uh, then then you have, uh, in 1996, EchoStar, also known as the Dish Network. And uh, more recently, you have AT&T and Verizon and other uh, local phone companies being given permission to provide uh, video services, and so if, if you want to call them cable TV companies, that's fine. You could also just call them broadband uh, video providers or uh, uh, broadband service providers, which is what the Federal Communications Commission is calling these folks now. 
But uh, you, so you've got competition that has entered into the market, and it's very tough to argue with the market structure that the entrants have chosen. They don't have market power to exploit. They're not trying to restrict output. They're trying to get sufficient scale, and desperately so. It's, a, it's, it's, it's not an easy competition. They're trying to get sufficient scale to survive and, and to make competitive returns. And they, and they, and they don't uh, sell you programs one at a time. They, I mean, they, they could uh, try it a different way, but what they try to do is just give you a very large bundle of what are called linear programming networks, meaning the sort of, you know, 24-7 uh, choices that we're familiar with, you know, from broadcasting on ABC to cable on ESPN or Discovery Channel or HBO. And they try to give you a very large uh, bundle of, uh, of programming choices in that kind of linear network package. Now, that you can think of all kinds of other ways to sell the services, including, of course, through video streaming or uh, you know different uh, different downloads that could be attempted, but um, uh, given the costs, given the available inputs, including spectrum, and uh, given customer preferences, that's the way to do it. And if you actually look at the the way the entrants have done it, and there there are a lot of other entrants you can look at in U.S. and other markets uh, that. Um, uh, confirm this. This is um, a highly efficient way to give people a lot of valuable programming. Uh, I hope it's not the end of the road. I hope that, uh, in fact, broadband networks develop, and in fact, consumer premises equipment, the stuff you use in your house to receive the broadband, uh, and, and the home networks I- improve, and I don't think there's any doubt that they will over the next five to ten years, such such that video programming is going to migrate not just from over-the-air broadcasting, which is over 90% complete in the U.S., but it's going to migrate from cable and satellite uh, to to broadband distribution. That's that's really the the generation we're into right now. That's the migration that we're uh, we should be focused on. Well, let, let's move on to the spectrum issue. Uh, what is at stake in how the government hands out access to the uh, to the spectrum? What is that? What is that? What does that technically involve? What What are the issues? Well, uh, for wireless services, uh, from you know radio broadcasting, which has been with us for uh, almost a hundred years now, to um, uh, cellular uh, telephone service, to uh, uh, local in-home wiring, uh, excuse me, wireless. Uh, network connectivity, whether it be uh, through a cordless phone or uh, a Wi-Fi connection. All of this involves uh, the use of radio waves, and um, there is a need uh, to, um, uh, to impose rules on radio spectrum uh, to avert tragedy of the commons. So uh, not exactly in the sense of uh, the way the regulators put it, which is to eliminate interference but to, as I say, mitigate tragedy of the commons, to try to, uh, uh, as Coase uh, once noted, to try to optimize the use of the radio spectrum uh, and figure out what interference was worth it. Uh, we, we want there to be rules in place that allow people to, um, uh, to, you know, to, to make the right allocational decisions about you know, radio spectrum. And when I say it's an input into wireless services, that is to say that, you know, you can think of bandwidth uh, uh, for uh, radio spectrum as, um, you know, being like a lot of other inputs where, you know, more 
uh, generally means you can have um, uh, more services, more phone calls, you know, higher speeds for uh, internet downloads. And um, uh, on the other hand, the cost of having more bandwidth is uh, more other stuff can't get done because, yes, you do impinge or conflict uh, or impose costs, however you want to phrase it, on other users, the more that uh, that goes to, to, to one service, um, you know, imposes costs on others. So uh, there is a need for coordinating that usage, and traditionally uh, in the United States and other countries, the... Uh, the system has been one of administrative allocation where regulators try to figure out where uh, on the uh, dial, so to speak, the electromagnetic spectrum dial, uh, certain services should be provided and then who should provide it and what technologies they use and what business models are allowed. And um, that kind of micromanagement uh, led Ronald Coase uh, in 1959 when he was taking a look at the uh, uh, whole way we regulate uh, uh, wireless in the United States, wh- which was more focused on radio and television broadcasting, certainly because satellite and uh, and cellular uh, telephony had not uh, yet been deployed. He, uh, you know, he thought it was highly inefficient uh, that uh, there be a um, so-called command and control system. Uh, down. Although he didn't use that term, but he thought that if you just distributed. Uh, frequency ownership rights in the market that people could uh, make their own wireless deployments and then through negotiations with their wireless neighbors in radio space, that is to say, they could negotiate uh, the optimal interference rules so that if, uh, you know, you own a frequency next door, you know, in in, uh, in megahertz or bandwidth space next door to my frequency and I want to use some technology that encroaches on your space, uh, you know, you and I sit down and figure out uh, if, if I can pay you something that may uh, allow you to, to use a better technology, or maybe I'll obviously uh, uh, I could clean up my act by uh, employing a better technology, or more base stations, or more directional antennas. There's always you know these re- uh, technical fixes at a, at a higher cost to avoid interference or uh, conflict with others. And uh, that was the process of uh, marketplace negotiation over spillovers that led Coase famously the following year to write a paper uh, whose central uh, uh, finding has been uh, dubbed by George Stigler the Coase Theorem. But uh, within the spectrum world, the benefits of decentralized uh, property ownership uh, have been uh, a central source of debate uh, ever since Coase uh, started into that uh, in 1959. And we're – so historically, we have uh, – we – not the right word uh, – regulators, the government, has decided who gets what. Uh, but there's many economists who argue that we ought to, as you sa- as Coase argued for, distribute it or in the case in recent years, we should perhaps auction it off. Um, have we done that and to what effect? Yeah, well, there's two there's two issues here. One is the question of how should the property rights to spectrum uh, be be defined, which is the property question, and then the the other one is once you define the the property rights um, in a in a way that allows people to have more discretion over the use of spectrum rather than just do particular things as you know dictated by regulators, how you assign those rights. And on the assignment question, uh, you know, we we went for decades with 
uh, arguments being made by by Coase and other economists that we should have auctions to assign the rights. And the regulators, uh, in particular, the uh, oversight committees of Congress oppose that. They like the discretion involved in in uh, having more rents uh, determined by uh, congressional or you know uh, regulatory action, with the, with the regulators being under the thumb of of, of the Congress. But finally, in uh, 1993, when we had uh, uh, the, the Congress and the, and the president, the presidency in the same party's hands, and we had uh, a uh, a new technology that was just about to to be ready to be issued for more mobile phone service, uh, it all lined up politically such that we uh, we had Congress vote to authorize auctions. So since 1993-94, we've been conducting auctions, and we've raised about $50 billion in government revenue as a result of those auctions. That used to be a big number. Um, yeah. But well, it's, it's actually quite a small number, not, not just re- related to the U.S. budget, but related to the markets that are involved here, because the real consumer surplus involved, of course, has nothing to do with the license uh, valuations, correct. which are capitalized value of the producer surplus, the profits. And if you just look at the wireless phone market in the United States, you're generating well over $150 billion a year. That's the lower bound estimate in terms of social, excuse me, consumer surplus, consumer side value. And that exceeds uh, all the, the licenses we've auctioned off since 1994 uh, by a factor of three. And, that, and that's an annual number. And the license auction uh, payments are just uh, one-time lump sums. Right. So the, just by orders of magnitude, the real, the real dollars at stake here uh, are on getting more spectrum out so there can be more competition amongst networks and then more capacity within the network so that they can offer more services. So is there parts of the spectrum that are now being withheld that are not available for exploitation by producers and consumers? Well, this is one of the great uh, uh, the, the, the great uh, uh, oh, mystery shrouds of the uh, regulatory system. If you ask the regulators, you know, do you have any uh, spectrum you're harboring? Oh, no, this is crowded to the, to the hill. In fact, I can show you uh, articles from 1990 in the, in the news that, you know, quoting the government officials saying there was no more spectrum. You know, an, an airwave, uh, tel- an, an air telephone line, a license was given out for, for telephone calls, a very small bandwidth allocated to uh, making telephone calls in airplanes. When that license went out in 1990, this is just one of the citations that uh, I noticed that the National Journal wrote that this was the last spectrum that was available to be given out. And uh, since then, we've had the whole piece industry and hundreds of megahertz of bandwidth go out. But the, the, according to the FCC or the government, you know, spectrum maps, everything looks allocated. But of course, what's happening is that uh, the, the spectrum is way underutilized. And so you have something like the television band that was allocated for over-the-air broadcasting uh, from the, ni- the late 1930s to the early 1950s. And even after the digital TV transition, which is underway and will, by schedule, uh, conclude in February of 2009, we will still have uh, 49 TV channels allocated in every single TV market in America, all 210 of them. We will have 49 TV channels allocated for off-air TV. Now, they're only... There are only uh, uh, fewer than 1,800 TV stations in America. So that's about eight TV stations uh, 
per market. <coughs> Excuse me. And uh, and we've we've allocated 49 channels for those eight TV stations. Now um, the, the the regulators will tell you, well, you know, it's hard to fit anything else in there. And uh, well, who has the right to start and use any of those channels? Well, the, uh, nobody. The regulators, uh, and they withhold the rights. Uh, this is this is the administrative allocation system, some, called by some command and control. Now, there's currently a, a policy underway. It's a rulemaking that started in 2002. That's that's uh, now underway to allow uh, certain low-powered devices approved by the federal regulators and designed so that they don't interfere with anybody watching over-the-air television to use the so-called white spaces in the TV band. And these devices, presumably, although there aren't any devices yet, in fact, none have been approved, and we don't know what they look like and we don't know what they do, but they allegedly would do things like Wi-Fi, distribute uh, uh, communication signals around your house or office, and particularly video signals. Uh, but um, the FCC gets to approve them, and the problem is, is that this is uh, this is on a so-called unlicensed basis, where uh, the government is allocating again the spectrum and, and designing the rules for who gets to use the spectrum. And once they start on this path, you can see where it's going. The existing TV stations, which should be and are obsolete, but which which should be able to move and cluster and free up uh, the TV band. Uh, in fact, they should be able to migrate to another technology like over-the-air satellite, and we could free up the entire uh, 49 channels of uh, you know currently allocated for digital television. Which they'd be happy to do, presumably, if they could well, sell the right and profit from that migration. Exactly, but you need what you need to do to get that deal done is you need a new uh, agent that owns the spectrum for efficiently reallocating it. In other words, paying off the broadcasters to go away. Right. And when you when you dump the unlicensed devices in there, you're creating, you know, what economists and lawyers call tragedy. The anti-commons. There's nobody who is a residual claimant anymore, except the regulators. And the regulators have mis you know mismanaged that spectrum for for over 50 years. And we know the politics of that, so there's no, you know, so so at any rate, I'm just without property rights for ownership of those TV bands, and and this is the mother low that that TV band is wonderful spectrum. It's worth a lot for things like wireless broadband or wireless voice, mobile telephony. Uh, but without uh, property rights to to use it and to rearrange it and to use it for something more valuable, meaning as a you know an owner residual claimant, you you. You profit. Without that, you're going to um, simply uh, have a political football in there. And in fact, congressmen are now being urged to write the, the FCC and call the FCC to put pressure on them to approve certain devices, as if your congressman's a futurist. And uh, and loses, of course, nothing when 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 the plan is a flop. But they're but they're embarking on this uh, social engineering without any opportunity to ask the right question. They're asking the question, what devices can use the TV band white space without interfering with the over-the-air digital TV broadcasts? That's, that's just completely the wrong question. The question is, how can we get the over-the-air digital TV broadcasts to efficiently 
make the entire space available for others who are willing to pay more, because there is no doubt that the uh, over-the-air signals are not efficiently provided with that spectrum, because we know that more than 90% of TV viewing already takes place on cable and satellite. People are willing to pay to opt out of what they call free television. And with the, 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 the new migration I referred to earlier being to video streaming and broadband network distribution for video, we're in fact two generations behind in the TV band, but the FCC is protecting, the regulators are protecting, you know, what I'm calling the killer application of 1952, over-the-air broadcast television, and then sprinkling in these unlicensed devices around them uh, that they're going to be extremely low power. If people really think they're going to substitute for your Wi-Fi router and everything else, it's probably pretty far-fetched because the extreme, you know, the broadcasters are are powerful at the FCC, and they've gotten the FCC to to talk about extremely low power limits, meaning there's going to be very localized use and and, uh, the bandwidth will not be uh, very generous. So anyway, this is is just a central planning problem. And the FCC, the regulators, and even uh, champions of this uh, so-called unlicensed white space plan like Google and Microsoft uh, are... um, uh, are, 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 you know, for, for some reason that I, I can't give you a theory, a good theory on, uh, they are they are pushing this uh, central planning approach that would, um, uh, you know, be be dominated in terms of the value unleashed if we were to have uh, a property rights approach where you just issued overlay licenses that allowed new owners to come in, pay off the TV stations, and then realize the value. Uh, of the new bandwidth, and they they could do low power applications if that were the the highest valued use for that spectrum, uh, and and in some cases it, it it might well be, but you 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 don't want the TV stations cluttering up that whole band. Everybody knows you got to move those TV stations either to one spot on the band or get rid of them altogether, which could well be done by just putting all the broadcasting say on satellite, and then having everybody who wants the, the broadcast signals just get a satellite dish, which. Nationally, you could literally get everybody who doesn't have a satellite dish or a cable connection for about $3 billion uh, to be hooked up to, to just a free uh, satellite distribution of uh, broadcast TV. So that, that whole bandwidth there, which, which would sell for, you know, at current prices, $100 billion, uh, that, uh, you know, you, at a small fraction of that, you could literally scoop out all those TV stations and put them in uh, an alternative distribution platform and then have all the, the, the value of that band for other services. Well, the irony to me seems to be that, you know, TV and radio, which is where the spectrum started, right, for, and was where the action was for so long, are slowly being pushed out by alternative technologies, the, the satellites, cable. The Internet is a fantastic provider now of video and increasingly, you know, important provider of video and and what we're doing right here on econ talk is really a rate is no different than a radio show it's just you know entertainment and education for the ear which you can get from your ipod or your computer or your so-called radio it's just uh in some ways an archaic um distinction but the um the real issue as you point out is the innovation that doesn't take place elsewhere that we that, that we're stopping because of it well yeah, and it's 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 a it's a tragedy. That is to say, people are saying, "Oh, we we need these unlicensed devices," but the, they don't look at the efficiency uh, of the alternatives. And there's just no question that if you allowed, for example, Google itself to uh, own 
some slice of the TV band and then make deals to move the TV broadcasts to uh, alternative channels or alternative media, they would unleash fabulously interesting innovations. And so uh, that... um, you know that path um, is it's very frustrating to see that that path is foreclosed by regulators uh, who um, are not in the United States very imaginative about this and uh, you know to some extent have drunk the Kool-Aid that uh, indeed uh, we we don't need a property rights approach to uh, uh, to unleash um, advanced services and, right. and, and indeed the property rights approach particularly in the cellular bands has proven extremely important for allowing us to um, to use those bands for, for for much more valuable services not to mention the fact that over 260 million people have voice services and and now um, well over 35 million have wireless broadband from a wireless carrier and uh, and we're just at the tip of that because we've been the regulators have been so parsimonious in putting bandwidth into that market. I, I would just suggest that that uh, perhaps you and I are drinking a different flavor of Kool Aid. I, ha- I have to at least confess the possibility, and that perhaps they're not Kool Aid drinkers, but responding to different uh, different forces than than you and I are. Perhaps um, I suspect political issues there are more important than theories of economics. To, but maybe I'm well, wrong. Well, I, 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 uh, I'm, I'm very perplexed. You call me a Kool Aid drinker because I, I, if you call me a beer drinker, that would be one thing. But uh, <laughs> I'm just uh, trying to. I'm just maybe trying to flavor it in a funny way. But just, I, 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 I would not like Kool Aid. I'm just trying to pretend that. Uh, never mind. Um, <laughs> I, we're almost out of time. I want to just ask you uh, uh, about your own experiences to close uh, in this uh, in that political economy world. You were chief economist at the FCC. Uh, what was the most interesting or surprising thing that you learned from that experience? Well, you, that you, you can uh, talk about on the air. Yeah, <laughs> no, I, I, I urge uh, scholars to take uh, good opportunities to uh, work in a you know a federal agency in their area of expertise, and uh, you you will find out about all kinds of margins that are not you know clear to you at all. In fact, stuff you haven't even thought about that uh, become. Uh, very lively uh, debates within an agency and, and, of course, beyond. One of the things you learn is how constrained agencies are. You think uh, they're going to look at good ideas and just say, wow, you know, that Hazlitt paper, you know, that is just totally persuasive. Uh, and, um, you know, it turns out that there are really equilibria uh, that determine policies. And uh, there are people pushing, you know, generally on all sides of the issue. And, um it, it comes out in a certain way. There are also a lot of idiosyncratic uh, uh, aspects to the policy process that economists and scholars should understand. It uh, it's uh, it's not nearly as smooth as just saying there's more money on one side. In fact, it's very difficult, you know, in, in the average situation to see where the quote unquote more money is. But uh, yes, you know who the committee chairman is, and uh, uh, you know who who. Um, who gets in with with another election? Lots of uh, lots of institutional uh, road bumps that uh, become important. And then, uh, you know, lastly, I'd say that uh, a very reliable way of figuring out the economics of different programs instantly uh, comes uh, onto your radar screen when you're at an agency, and that is, you know, who is proposing what set of rules, and and you know, why are they doing it? And one of the uh, things that I, I like to point to is that uh, 
when I was at the agency way back in 90, uh, the Federal Communications Commission, way back in 91 and 92, uh, one of the things I worked on was the uh, spectrum allocation for what was called PCS, Personal Communication Services. And uh, that's when we only had the cellular duopoly. We were trying to put more spectrum and more licenses into the market to improve competition. And it was uh, What was the cellular duopoly? What was that? The cellular? Well, in the 80s, we issued two cellular licenses in each local market. And uh, so at that point, point, we had very high-priced cell phone service. It was over 50 cents per minute. Now we're paying about 6 cents a minute. Uh, on average. But uh, as we went forward, it was assumed, uh, just operationally, not that there was any uh, actual connection, but it was just assumed uh, that AT&T would, uh, in fact, uh, the long-distance operator uh, that had uh, gotten into the cable TV business, uh, that AT&T would be a uh, an obvious uh, licensee national player in PCS, and in fact, we were uh, arguing uh, at the FCC for auction authority. So, you know, we we thought that uh, AT and T would be a natural to uh, bid for a nationwide license. And in fact, AT and T, uh, on one of the important policy cuts, was very outspoken. And the policy cut was whether or not to put out local licenses or a national license. In cellular, there had been 734 local licenses. That is to say, the FCC issued two licenses in each of 734 local markets. That was a radical uh, deconcentration or fragmentation policy. No, no other country in the world comes close to issuing that many licenses. Uh, almost all the other countries, in fact, do national licenses. AT&T petitioned... Uh, very uh, uh, forthrightly that it, as an entrant, potential entrant into the mobile telephone market, needed a national license, and they had uh, their their experts, uh, you know, submitting reports on this, and they were very um, emphatic about the point. Well, then in 19, the fall of 1993, AT&T uh, essentially bought the largest cellular network in the country. It was called. Uh, cellular one, uh, and uh, they actually withdrew their previous filings on this question of a national license and said now, as they thought about it, that the FCC should in fact issue very small local licenses. And of course, their perspective had changed dramatically when instead of becoming a potential entrant, they actually switched around and became an incumbent. Yeah, that's cool. and that, that, of course, is very standard within the, the, the process, and people don't understand what good information that is. It really shows you where the efficiencies are and how, how if you're a regulator and you take that seriously, you really should want a national license or a, an auction that allows a national license through, say, a combination bid to be easily assembled. It really is an efficiency speaking to you from the interests of the players in the market. And so, uh, you know, people think, well, the, you know, the, the, the companies are only doing what's in the interest of their shareholders, and, that's, and they'll frame all of their policy positions on that basis. Well, yeah, that's exactly right, and that's why you can learn reliably where the efficiencies are, not just to look at AT&T or one com- company in particular, but to look across uh, the, the spectrum and to, you know, piece that all together in terms of what you think the economics of competition are. Great, great point. My guest today has been Thomas Hazlett of George Mason University. Tom, thanks for being part of Econ Talk. Thanks for having me, Russ. 
This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.